Hey, good morning, everyone. It's so good to be here. So the start of Lent, you know, we talked a little bit about that this morning. I did grow up Catholic. And growing up Catholic, you know, Lent has always signified to the church for a thousand years at least. And it was mentioned in the mid-second century by some of the church fathers as a time of preparation for new life. It was used in the early church as a, as a mandatory preparation for baptism. Uh, someone who wanted to be baptized into the church took a 40-day period of fasting and, and uh, introspection, you know, self-examination. But by the time I came around in the 60s, Lent had sort of devolved into a fasting and a denying of something pleasurable in order to do penance for sin. And so it was just a taking away. It was a time, it was a dark time. You had to give up candy bars or chocolate or something as a kid, you know. And so it, was, it became a negative connotation, you know, some type of suffering that we needed to do in order to get right with God. And, and that is so antithetical to everything that Jesus is about and Jesus' message. And so what we're trying to do is take it and turn it around and say, okay, let's look at Lent positively. Instead of taking something away because of something we did wrong, we are stripping away anything that stands between us and the presence of our God. Do you see the difference? And here's the best part. In order to do that negative work, that stripping away, that subtraction, the taking away of all the distractions, whether they're internal or external, away from us so that we can really connect with our God, we do something affirmative, something positive. It's not the absence of action. It's not a passive approach. It's active and it's affirmative. And what we did last week is we gave you two handouts. And if any of you didn't get them, they're out on the book table outside in the courtyard. One was mindfulness exercises, things that we can do every day. Simple things like being aware of our breath, being aware of the things that we see, um, being mindful of our emotional state, things that will ground us and bring us back down to the moment to ground zero when our heads have spun us out. And the other thing was centering prayer, which is something that you do offline. Carve out a half an hour each day, or maybe two half hours, morning and evening, to actually sit in silence and do the centering prayer and the guide is out there. So those are two ways to take a look at this. But what we want to do is even go further than that this morning. We want to take a look how this attitude this practice of presence, this practice of stripping away all the distractions in our life can become an actual way of life, a new attitude for living that changes the entire way that we look at life, the way that we experience it. And so this morning, as we were talking about the ten virgins and the ones that were prudent and the ones that were foolish, this is alluding to the Jewish wedding feast. And I thought it would be good for us to read the actual passage so we can get a little bit clearer idea of what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And at Matthew 25, right at verse 1, he says, The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. You know, Jesus is always doing this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to this or that. Because you can't talk about it directly. You can't just say what it is because as soon as you've named it, as soon as you've said it, as soon as you put edges around it, then you've stepped away from it. You've objectified it and you're no longer in it. 
But what he's doing, he's always trying to point us to, it's like this. You know what it's like in the wedding feast? Of course they did. They lived for the wedding feast. That was like the biggest thing on the social calendar. Are you kidding me? Seven straight days of partying, that was a big deal. So it's kind of like that. You know how you felt when that was happening? You know what you did when that was going on? This is what he's trying to do. Now, we don't have the same kind of resonance, but we're trying to make this real enough to ourselves so that we can resonate at that frequency. We can move into some of these things and find what it is that Jesus is trying to point us toward. So the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamp and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and for you too. So go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. And I know this sounds really harsh. Man, because we're thinking in terms of heaven and hell, aren't we? Isn't that naturally where we go as, as Western Christians? Or we're thinking about the last days. We're thinking about the second coming. We're thinking about all this apocalyptic stuff. But if you know anything about Jewish thought, if you know anything about Jesus, everything is rooted in the here and now. All he's talking about is you missed the moment. You missed the hour of your visitation. Remember at Palm Sunday when he weeps over Jerusalem and he prophesies that one stone is going to be left on top of another, that in 60 years Rome is going to take it all down, 40 years actually. He says, because you did not recognize the hour of your visitation. They didn't recognize what was really in front of them so that they could course correct, take a different path that would have gotten them around that particular catastrophe in their lives. And it's not God who is doing this to those young girls. And God is not doing it to us. We're doing it to ourselves. By not being prepared, by not being able to see what is right in front of us, we shut the door on ourselves. We take ourselves out of the equation. And that's really what's going on here. Now, all of this is alluding to the Jewish wedding tradition, and we went over this last week, but the shorthand is that between the betrothal and the actual wedding ceremony that finalized and consummated the marriage, there could be a year or two year span. And so the bride was waiting for the groom to come back. She stayed at her father's house. The groom went back to his father's house, built the apartment, built the mansion, the Hadar, for them to be able to live in. And when father said it was time, he went back to pick up his bride. And it was never announced when he was coming. It was a surprise. It was a big deal. It was a lot of fun. He would come in the nighttime. And there would be a shout, the blowing of the shofar, the trumpet at the edge of town. And all the young girls, 12 and 14, the bride herself was 12 or 14, would run, you know, you can just hear them squealing and laughing, you know, with their torches, with their lamps, to light a path from the edge of town back to the father of the bride's house. But are you ready? 
This is what Jesus is saying. You don't know the day nor the hour. You have no idea when these things are coming. You know? Moses had no idea he was going to see a burning bush that wasn't consumed. But 40 years in the desert, as a shepherd, becoming more and more introspective, becoming more and more quiet in his spirit, allowed him to see what was right in front of him and to be able to then go and realize that he was on holy ground. It's the same for us, for all of us. Jesus is saying, will you do this? We place the emphasis on the future, waiting for something to come second coming, last days, our own death, whatever it happens to be. But the focus is here now, always. Every moment is an arrival. Every moment is a visitation if we're alert to it, fully immersed right here and right now with promises of a radical new life, something completely changing. I have a friend who just started dating someone who is actually really well connected in in, uh, Los Angeles and Hollywood life. Suddenly he finds himself going to these dinners with all these celebrities and going to these concerts and sitting like one row away from the act. And his life has radically changed because his life has become intertwined with this other person. It's just like that. The bride's life will radically change as soon as she becomes intertwined with the bridegroom. You know, whatever his life is becomes her life. When our life becomes intertwined with our master, with our God, in this arrival, this, this, this coming, this visitation, our lives will be radically changed because they're going to reflect the life of the master, the life of our God. This is what we are looking forward to. But here's the catch. We will only realize that moment if we forget about there then and just focus here now. That's the big paradox that Jesus is trying. We've got to be focused here now because whatever's going to happen is always going to happen here now. And if we're not here now to meet it, where the heck are we? This is what keeps coming back over and over again in all of these stories, in all of these paradoxical sayings. So Lent is this time to prepare, to become entirely ready. And those of you in the program know what that's all about, to become entirely ready for this radical new life, this rebirth, born-againness, this awakening. So how are we going to do that? How does that actually work? Well, last week we had the handouts. We talked about centering prayer. We talked about mindfulness. This week, let's see if we can begin to see life in this new way. You know, not just taking our mindfulness and presence and putting it into religious or spiritual boxes, but actually letting it out to roam the countryside, letting it out to really be a part of our lives at large. This is what we're trying to do. Um, Baron is becoming my supplier of sermon illustrations. Last week she had sent me an article that was just great, and then Friday I got another email with a wonderful poem from a a young poet by the name of Sarah Kay. I don't know if any of you have heard of her. And I didn't open it on Friday, and then Saturday morning I was sitting down to really work on the message, and I said, "Ah, do I really have time to read this? I don't know. Well, then I thought, you never know. There could be a visitation here. So I read the thing, and was it great, and was it perfect for what I'm trying to say? So I want to read you a little bit of, of this poem, and just see what you think. Um, Her name is Sarah Kay. She's 28 years old. And this poem is, If I Should Have a Daughter. And she writes, If I should have a daughter, instead of mom, she's going to call me point B. Because that way she knows that no matter what happens, at least she can always find her way back to me. 
and I'm going to paint solar systems on the back of her hands. So she has to learn the entire universe before she can say, oh, I know that like the back of my hand. And she's going to learn that this life will hit you hard in the face and then wait for you to get back up so it can just kick you in the stomach. But getting the wind knocked out of you is the only way to remind your lungs how much they like the taste of air. There is hurt here that cannot be fixed by band-aids or poetry. So the first time she realizes that Wonder Woman isn't coming, I'll make sure she knows she doesn't have to wear the cape all by herself. Because no matter how wide you stretch your fingers, your hands will always be too small to catch all the pain you want to heal. Believe me, I've tried. I want her to look at the world through the underside of a glass-bottomed boat, to look through a microscope at the galaxies that exist on the pinpoint of a human mind. Because that's the way my mom taught me, that there will be days like this. There will be days like this, my mama said. When you open your hands to catch and wind up with only blisters and bruises, when you step out of the phone booth and try to fly, and the very people you want to save are the ones standing on your cape, when your boots will fill with rain and you'll be up to your knees in disappointment, And those are the very days you have all the more reason to say thank you. Because there's nothing more beautiful than the way the ocean refuses to stop kissing the shoreline, no matter how many times it's sent away. You will put the wind in win some, lose some. You will put the star in starting over and over. And no matter how many landmines erupt in a minute, be sure your mind lands on the beauty of this funny place called life. And yes, on a scale from one to over-trusting, I'm pretty damn naive, but I want her to know that the world is made out of sugar. It can crumble so easily, but don't be afraid to stick out your tongue and taste it. Baby, I'll tell her, remember your mama is a warrior and your papa is a warrior and you are the girl with small hands and big eyes who never stops asking for more. Remember that good things come in threes and so do bad things. Always apologize when you've done something wrong. But don't you ever apologize for the way your eyes refuse to stop shining. Your voice is small, but don't ever stop singing. And when they finally hand you heartache, when they slip war and hatred under your door and offer you handouts on street corners of cynicism and defeat, you tell them that they really ought to meet your mama. (laughs) This is a philosophy of life. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it a great way to look at life? To see the totality of life to see the reality of life, dealing with difficulties in a real way, with pain, with betrayal, with codependence. Did you hear the codependence in there? The fear, but also right alongside joy and wonder, without shrinking away from the hard times and the hard moments, and seeing purpose and perseverance, that wonderful image of the ocean kissing the shore over and over again perseverance, showing up. And not just showing up, but showing up grateful for each breath that you take. No matter how many times the wind has been kicked out of you, you keep coming back. It's about immersing in life. It's about finally not trying to control life, to corral it into something that you want it to be. Allowing yourself to be caught up in the flow just moving through. After I read the poem, I went to her website because I wanted to find out more about her, you know. She's a performance artist, poet. 
But on her website, she's taken her name, Sarah K, and she did it K, um, comma, Sarah. And then in, in parentheses after that, she writes Sarah, which is uh, Spanish. Que sera? Que sera? Sera? Remember that song? What will be, will be. Isn't that perfect? This is her philosophy. This is what she's trying to get at. What will be, will be. Will you let it flow in you? Or are you going to try to make it something that you will need it to be? Out of your fear, you want it to be desperately. Can we just case it off? You know? You know, but what I was thinking was as beautiful and as true as this poem may be, it's still just a theory. It's still just a plan in her life. She's 28 years old. She doesn't have a daughter. And for as long as she doesn't have a daughter, she doesn't really know what she'll do when the time comes, and neither do any of us. You know, this poem, this statement of philosophy, not just in this poem, but in her life, is a snapshot. It's a snapshot of what she believes right now. It's a snapshot of how she's ordered her life. But if she doesn't, when she has a daughter, roll with her daughter's life. Is her daughter really going to call her point B? I don't think so. But if she doesn't roll with her daughter and realize her daughter is going to exert this influence on her, change things profoundly in ways that she couldn't even imagine, as wise as she is, and if she can't move with that and flow with that, then she hasn't learned the lesson that she's trying to teach the rest of us. And what's that lesson? That life can't be planned. It can't be understood. It can't be controlled. It can only be lived. It can only be experienced from one moment to the next. Have you ever tried to plan a conversation that you were going to have the next day? Stayed up all night thinking about it. If I'm going to say this and I'm going to have this all argument and I get this whole decision tree on the ceiling, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And they're going to do this and I'm going to do... Does it ever work out the way that you planned? How could it possibly when just a stray lock of hair brushed away from a forehead can completely change your entire logic. Everything can change in that moment. You know? Have you ever raised a child? And here's the most important thing. Have you raised more than one child? You know, Bill Cosby used to say, if you just have one child, then you don't count. You're not a parent. Because you've never heard, will you stop touching me? Will you stop? You know, you know. But every child, you know, for me, fatherhood just kind of blindsided me. I wasn't prepared for it. I wasn't ready for it. And I realized as I was trying to go through this, all I had was what I remembered my parents doing with me. That was the only frame of reference that I had for how to parent. And some of it wasn't very good. And then each child was different. It's not like there's a one-size-fits-all discipline or way of doing things. And the more you try to exert that, the more things just kind of squeeze out from under your fingers. I had to roll with each child and find out who they were in order to be able to have some sort of clue what we've tried to do with our kids. It's different when you actually get there than anything that you think beforehand. You see, being alert to life, being ready for presence, capital P, means to be aware of the flow of life what's actually happening at the moment. Not like we would wish it to be. It ought to be. Imagine it to be. We're taught that it is. Fear that it is. Or need it to be desperately. Just as it is. Our plans, imagined outcomes, our theories, 
If we hang on to those, they keep us out of the game. They keep us out of the moments. We really, really wish that we could figure it all out. We try to get an answer to life, and all we get is 49. Wasn't that Hitchhiker's Guide? We want it a plan. We want to plan it all out. We want to put it under glass. We want to try to live three feet off the ground in some sort of parallel track of our own making so that we never get our shoes dirty. You know, we never really want to get down and just live life because it's so scary often. And the only antidote to this is the freedom that Jesus is talking about. The freedom that comes from knowing the truth that finally allows us to just let life play through. Let it be. Stop trying to dam it up and and change the flow. Just go with it. John Lennon, in the, the song Beautiful Boy, I put the little quote there, life is what happens while you are busy making other plans. Love that. So what about planning? Don't we have to do it? Aren't we supposed to do it? If we're going to be responsible, don't we have to plan things? We need to plan. Of course we do. You know? Like the bride who is living in that balanced state, waiting for her bridegroom to come between heaven and earth as the Jews saw things spiritually, but between lives, between the life that she has and the life that will be coming, radically different. Between immersion in here now and thoughts and anticipations of the future, that balance is what we're all after. So how do we do that? How can we get there? You know, how can we become balanced in our immersion, but also plans at the same time that we all absolutely need? I, I ran across a, an article, and it's kind of strange because it's, it's from a lawyer, of all people, Stephen. <laughs> he's a lawyer, and, um, but he's a legal project manager. So he's all, all involved in planning things, you know. And, and this was a, a little online seminar or maybe just a transcript of a seminar that he did to try to help people plan projects. But I thought this was so interesting because he starts with some quotes. And I put the quotes and his three planning errors that, that I distilled out of this on your uh, bulletin so you, or the insert so that you can kind of follow along and maybe have something to take away. But he starts with this quote that is perfect. No battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Now, you've got to love that, right? That was from Helmut von Moltke, who was a 19th century German field marshal. No battle plan survives contact with the enemy. When your plan meets the real world, the real world wins. <laughs> Nothing goes as planned. Errors pile up. Mistaken suppositions come back to bite you. The most brilliant plan loses touch with reality. Or as Robert Burns put it, the less bade, less <laughs> the best laid schemes of mice and men gang off d'agli, <laughs> which means often go askew. But he was only partly right. They don't often go askew. They invariably go askew. And I don't know if you're familiar with that illusion of mice and men, but um, I went back to the original poem, and it was just so perfect. I want to read you a few stanzas. This is my day for reading poetry. Forgive me. But uh, Robert Burns was a, a son of a farmer and a farmer. He, was a, he, he would plow the fields, but he was also the bard of, of Scotland, You know, one of their most revered poets in the 1700s. And 
um, as he was plowing the field one day, he turned over a mouse's nest who had nested in the field that he was plowing. And of course, the mouse scampers off. And so uh, he wrote an ode to a mouse. Small, crafty, cowering, timorous little beast. Oh, what a panic is in your breast. You need not start away so hasty with your hurrying scamper. I would be loath to run and chase you with murdering plow staff. I'm truly sorry man's dominion has broken nature's social union and justifies that ill opinion which makes you startle at me, your poor earthborn companion and fellow mortal. I doubt not sometimes that you may steal. What then? Poor little beast, you must live. An odd ear in twenty-four sheaves is a small request. I will get a blessing with what's left and never miss it. But little mouse, you are not alone in proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men often go askew and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. Still, you are blessed compared with me. The present only touches you, but oh, backward I cast my eye on prospects dreary, and forward, though I cannot see, I guess and fear. Ah. You see, what is so amazing to me, whether it's scripture whether it's a 28-year-old poet who's running around the internet or whether it's a uh, 18th century poet in Scotland, when anyone approaches the truth, when anyone pulls away enough of the distraction, they see exactly the same thing. They just express it differently. What is he saying? He's saying the same thing we're talking about. The mouse lives in the present. Yeah, I've got its nest ripped up. It's going to have to deal with that and the coming of winter, but not with the regrets of the past and the anxiety of the future that we manufacture in our own heads. If we can just clear all that out, life will look completely different to us. The attitude with which we live will be completely different. And I digress. So he says that these best laid schemes of mice and men that often go askew, that's not going far enough. They always go askew. Which leads to planning error number one. Relying on plans leads to failure. Now I didn't say plans lead to failure. However, the reliance on plans, especially on the assumed connection between the plan and reality, is usually an exercise in self-delusion. When plans meet the real world, it's not the real world that will yield to your plan. You must adapt whatever you're doing to the circumstances truly at hand. So if the plans fail, is the time spent making those plans wasted? Even though no battle plan survives contact with the enemy, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't plan. One of the greatest planners in history was the guy who laid out and got it right the incredibly complex D-Day landings during World War II. General Dwight Eisenhower said something that has stuck with me since I first heard it 40 years ago. Plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Which leads to planning error number two. Lack of planning leads to failure. Don't you love this? Relying on plan leads to failure, but lack of planning leads to failure. Sometimes you must act before you plan. In an emergency, you must respond immediately. If you plan for that emergency, of course, your response is likely to be much more effective. But not even the best planning covers every contingency. On the other hand, not everything is an emergency. And with good planning, even true emergencies don't feel so out of control. 
But lack of planning can make everything seem like an emergency. Even so, as Eisenhower is telling us, to get serious about planning, we need to remember that von Molke is still warning us not to get locked into those plans that we make. Plans fail even when there is no enemy. The problem here is that a plan is just an abstraction. Alfred Korzybski noted, the map is not the territory. Important. Planning never recreates the actual environment, but only a simplified model or map of the environment. Mistaking, mistaking the map for the territory is planning error number three. Oversimplifying reality leads to failure. You will be frozen in place if you attempt to detail the plan to actual reality because it will take just as long to plan as to act out the plan and possibly longer. You will leave out key details if you oversimplify the plan and try to stick to it or you will get details wrong because you can never equate map and territory from a distance. So what's the solution? Start with the plan, but do not end with the plan. It is you, your action after all, that must carry out the plans. In the face of the fog of war, in spite of surprises, on a map that poorly abstracts the terrain, and by surmounting your own inevitable errors, that's the big hidden secret of planning. In the end, you and your action matter more than the plan, much more. We plan. That's what we do. We're good at it. We put oil in our lamps. But then we have to just dive into life. Let the people that we meet, the events that we experience, the circumstances change us, change our plans. And then at some point, if you do that enough, you'll actually begin to love the adventure of having your plans changed, of being surprised, of something happening that you had no idea was coming around the corner. That's the fun in life, really. We love surprises. We want to be surprised. We're just too afraid to let that happen in our lives. We go to movies so we can be surprised. We love jokes because the punchline surprises us. That's why we laugh at it, right? It's not going where we think it's going. We want to go on vacations to experience something different than we normally experience. But it all has to be safe. It all has to be three feet above the ground so I don't get my shoes dirty. We don't let it come all the way down to life lived at the ground level. Being alert as Jesus is talking about it, being ready comes down to balance, like this Hebrew bride. Being alert, being ready for whatever is coming, immersed in your life, hypersensitive to the faces that are right with you, engaging in those relationships, but at the same time anticipating what is coming. It's amazing to me how ancient scripture 4,000, 6,000 years old, can still describe today's world so precisely, so accurately, that a 28-year-old performance poet can be saying the same thing that is being said in our scriptures because it's true. We're good at planning. That's what we do compulsively, fearfully, too afraid to let life happen. But Jesus is trying to show us a different way of living life, there's another quote if I can find the sheet. There it is. Jesus' way 
is all about giving ourselves permission to look at life and love and spirituality from a completely different point of view, trusting for even a few steps that there might be enough love to forgive a mistake or two and letting that conviction, as nascent as it may be, as newly formed as it may be, show us things we never should, never would have planned to see. This is kingdom. It's based in the trust of the good news that allows us to go out and take steps that maybe we have a sense of a plan, but we're willing to just move out and see what happens. Just let it go where it needs to go. To imagine how you will raise your daughter before you have one, that's a good thing to do. It's that snapshot we talked about. It shows you who you are right here and right now. But to cling to that snapshot, to let it grow all faded and dog-eared in your wallet when life has moved into a different place, is to lose the alertness, to lose the connection again, and to move off into a gray existence because it's not completely engaged in full-color life, if you want that metaphor. To imagine our lives, our spirituality, to plan for them is exactly the same. We can't do it. We can plan for it. We can say we understand. We can think the concepts. But until we actually move into life and engage it, the plan doesn't survive engagement with life. And it shouldn't. It shouldn't do that. Because life needs to take on its own journey. We need to flow with the journey with God's Spirit. We want to fix everything. We want to make it certain. We want to make it fit the niches in our head rather than letting the niches in our head expand to fit what life brings. And the reason we do that is that we don't want to feel the disorientation. We don't want to feel the disturbance that trusting life and trusting God will entail at times. If we're just going to trust God, if we're just going to move out, we're going to be disoriented. The things we thought we knew the things that seem so certain suddenly won't be anymore. But something better will. And that is the promise. To let life, let God, God's presence in life, change our plans, change our mind, change our direction. One last thing I wanted to read you was a journal entry that I remembered that I wrote back in 1993 And uh, it just follows the same kind of themes and see if it gives you something else to hang on to. This is Friday, October 15th, 1993 at 7 p.m. See, I'm a planner. What can I tell you? I got a date stamp, time stamp, everything. I started attending a parapastor program at church Wednesday night. It's a program designed to prepare men for ordination. Women aren't allowed. Bible seems to prohibit that, at least in most Christian interpretations. Not sure why. Makes me uncomfortable, but there it is. I'm in no theological or moral position to argue yet. And who said it was supposed to be comfortable anyway? For that matter, for that matter, I may not be eligible for ordination either because of my marital status. Divorced. Makes me an honorary woman, I guess. It amazes me and saddens me how all the decisions and mistakes of my life continue to limit the scope of my potential potential usefulness, if not in reality, 
at least in the eyes of some. At the same time, they have all conspired to make me what I am. And since right now that is a person who loves God and is even occasionally aware of his presence, how can I regret? Well, I do, somewhat. Maybe there is an easier way, a straighter way, an earlier way to get to this place without all the damaging detours that have permanently rearranged my life. I don't dwell on this, thankfully, but it does occur to me at regular intervals. So I sat in the pair of pastor meeting wondering at considerably shorter regular intervals if I belong there at all. I don't know how much I have in common with the others. They're all pretty young and thinking along apparently different lines from me. They asked me why I was there. Much of what I was thinking came out because it wasn't just those in that room I was feeling apart from. It's been most everyone and everything at the church. The more I begin to understand what a relationship with God really means, the more I realize it's nothing like I ever imagined. More profound, more beautiful, more difficult, more changing, more consuming, more solitary, and the more apart I feel. I wasn't prepared for this apartness. Who can I turn to? Who can I talk to about the disturbances kicking up? There are some who are sympathetic, but most are politely uninterested. I think they think I'm regressive, that I should have evolved beyond such uncertainties by now. Naturally, I didn't say all this at the meeting, but I said enough. I thought it was interesting that everyone wanted to help me. They started sharing how they overcame difficulties and problems and doubts in their lives, offered advice, encouragement, consolation. But they all missed the point that there is nothing to fix. There's nothing wrong. I wouldn't change anything if I could, though I can't. I couldn't go back now if I wanted to. But I listened quietly to the suggestions, tried to gently redirect the conversation where possible. Only the pastor in charge seemed to understand. He said several times that they had no answers for me. But I don't think even he understood that I wasn't asking any questions. I was simply answering theirs, why I was there, what brought me to where I am. I must have sounded plaintive. I didn't mean to. Or maybe we all just have a need to try to fix things we can't understand or categorize without stopping to consider that a thing may be just as it ought to be, we start whittling off corners to make it fit the niche we have prepared for it in our minds. I've heard that women are often driven at least partially insane by men who try to solve their problems for them with methodical and logical advice when all they really want is to be held. I've always acknowledged that with a chuckle. But now I think I understand. If we're going to be alert... If we're going to practice presence this Lent, we have to be present to everything. We have to be present to it all. The things that we see as good, the things that we see as bad, we have to let it all in. The good, the bad, the ugly. And we have to begin to see adventure in the constant changing of direction, the dance that we do with life as it moves and shakes and blows and, and, and just throws things at us that we never saw coming in a million years. And we need to stop questioning life and let life question us, change us, change our plans, and let God play through. Let's pray. 
Father, we are your people. We need to declare that from time to time. Not because you need it, but because we need it. We need to remember that we are your people. Our house is your house. That as your people, we want to reflect who you are, how you live, the values that you hold. Which means that we have to let go of all the stuff that we're clinging to, to let something new in. This season, Father, help us to make a concerted effort to find out how that works for us, for each one of us, how we can subtract the things that are keeping us from you by moving positively into a new way of living life, to look at life differently, to celebrate it in a new way. Help us, Father. We need your help. Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Help us to get up and do the things that we may even just purpose to do right now that might later prove not to be effective. That's okay, and we'll do something else. But just help us to get up and go, to move, to take a step. And help us to remember and to be aware that you're with us every step of this way, that there's never a moment that you're not there helping us along. Thank you for everything that you are, Lord. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for the way that you love us. And never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.